Welcome to the Daily Authors Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Gendel, and on today's incredible episode, I'm speaking with the lovely and talented Dr. Dolly Chug, author of The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias. Now, Dolly is a Harvard-educated, award-winning social psychologist at the NYU Stern School of Business, where she is an expert researcher in the unconscious biases and unethical behavior of ordinary good people. Dolly has been named one of the top most influential people in business ethics, a list that included Pope Francis, Angelina Jolie, and Bill Gates. Now, she has appeared live on MSNBC, and her research is regularly featured on numerous media outlets, including National Public Radio, NBC News, The New York Times, and Forbes, to name a few. So if you're ready to discover the person you mean to be, then stay tuned for this episode of the Daily Authors Podcast with Dr. Dolly Chug. Hey, by the way, if you're ready to write your book today, you can head on over to writeabookuniversity.com forward slash free and get a free four lesson video course that'll help you on your journey to writing your book. Welcome to the Daily Authors Podcast, a daily podcast all about books and the authors who gave them life. Each episode, your host interviews a new brilliant author as they reveal inside information about their incredible books and inspiring lives. Now, here's your host, Aaron Gendel. All right. Thank you so much, Dolly, for joining me on the Daily Authors Podcast. So excited to have you and to talk about your book, The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias. Thanks again, Dolly, for joining me on the show. Thank you, Aaron. I love the idea of your podcast. It's genius. Oh, thank you so much for the kind words. Well, before we start talking about your book, uh, Dolly, would you mind just letting the listeners in a bit on your life? You know, tell them a little bit more about yourself and your work and what you've got going on right now. Sure. So um, professionally, I'm a professor at New York University at the business school there called the Stern School of Business. And my book is an attempt to break out of the ivory tower, break out of the classroom, and bring what I think is really helpful and fascinating research to all of us in a way that we can use it and find it and understand it, particularly on the topics I study, which are around unconscious bias or implicit bias, as it's sometimes referred to. So this is teaching is a really big part of my identity professionally, and I would even say personally. So this is like taking the teaching outside of the university and into the printed page and beyond. <laughs> awesome. Well, let's dive into the book, Dolly. Uh, the person you mean to be, what, what inspired you uh, the most to write it? And could you just give us that 30,000 foot view? Yeah, well, I actually opened the book with a story of I'm at my first protest ever. It's a Black Lives Matter protest. I'm not, I don't think I can claim to be an activist or even particularly courageous in too many ways. But I think this was, I might have the year wrong, but something like 2014 or 15 or something. And Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old boy, had been shot while playing with a toy gun in the park. He had been shot mm. by a police officer. And that was just sort of the straw that broke the camel's back for me. And, and I rallied my husband and two friends. And we were at this protest in Times Square, New York City, in the Toys R Us, the flagship Toys R Us store, which is gigantic yeah. during Christmas season. Wow. And this protest had a few hundred people, I, I think. And very peaceful, very organized, not at all the version of it or the vision of it you get 
from the media where of course just sort of the fragments of bad news are what you see. This yeah. protest was in a really awesome example of civil disobedience. And yet I was still terrified. Like I was lying on the ground because it was a die-in. We were in the toy gun section, all lying on the ground, motionless. Christmas carols were playing through the speakers because it was Christmas season. And like tears were rolling down my face because I was so scared and felt so out of place and so not helpful. And what was going through my head is there's got to be another way to be useful. That when, if you care about issues of justice, if you care about issues of equity, is this the only path to moving the needle? Because if it is, I don't know if I can sustain this. I really don't think that's going to be my path. And so those were the emotions going through my mind, helplessness and fear. And then intellectually, I was like, wait a minute, I study these issues for a living. There's got to be a way. There have to be tools and strategies. And this book is that toolkit. This is what the rest of us can do. And it's a love letter to the activists who do show the courage and do put themselves out there because um, this is in no means meant to undermine them, but to to salute them and say, and the rest of us need to do our part too. Amazing. Wow. I love the solution you found. I'm curious now to just, you know, for any of us that, that have something they're, they feel deeply about, could you provide some, just some tips or some practical steps that you might provide in the, in your book that you might be able to take? Absolutely. So one of the big themes and tools in the book is the idea of, it's called mindset. Whether you have a view of yourself as being malleable and a work in progress, or if you see yourself sort of you are where you are. And we can have different mindsets about different things. Like you might have a mindset about public speaking, where you have a growth mindset. You're like, oh, I'm a work in progress. I get better every time I do it. And you might have a fixed mindset when it comes to, you know, basketball. You might think, well, it's, it's just, I'm just never going to be able to shoot a jump shot. And this tool of thinking consciously about how you view yourself when it comes to issues of bias, when it comes to seeing yourself as a biased person or not a biased person, turns out to be a really useful tool because it unlocks our ability to become a better person. So one of the themes of the book is that we need to let go of being a good person so that we can become a better person. And that's counterintuitive, but the reason is if you don't see yourself as a work in progress and you see yourself as a good person, most of us do, then it becomes either or. Like if somebody says that that joke I told offended them, but I see myself as a good person and I don't think that's something that's malleable. So therefore that person telling me the joke is offensive must be wrong. And so like the mental gymnastics we do to convince ourselves that there's nothing to be learned in that moment shuts down our ability to grow and become better and see our blind spots. And what we know as I'm trained as a social psychologist, what we know as social psychologists is that we all have blind spots. The data is like super duper clear on that. So one of the biggest tools is to simply let go of seeing yourself as a good person frozen in time. We are all growing this growth mindset as a key tool. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I love that. That's definitely a journey I'm on and a lot of the authors that I've interviewed are also on. So Absolutely. And, and by the way, if those who are interested 
in growth mindset and fixed mindset. That is the research of Carol Dweck, psychologist at Stanford, and her colleagues. She has a wonderful book, Name Mindset, which goes deeply into it. My contribution is to take that work and intersect it with these other issues around bias, diversity, and inclusion. Oh, that's great. Uh, well, Dolly, I wanted to ask if the listeners could take just one thing away from your book, the person you you mean to be, what would that be? Yeah, well, I, you know, it's, my book came out about a year ago. And so I've had the benefit of hearing from lots of readers of what they have taken away. And I'd say the thing they've taken away the most, the stickiest idea has been the idea of being goodish, being a goodish person. So if you buy into this idea that the more I'm convinced I'm a good person, the harder it is to become a better person, then the question is, well, but I don't want to be a bad person. What's the alternative to being a good person? And what I've proposed is the alternative is to be and think of yourself as a goodish person, hmm. not as like a lower standard. I don't mean like goodish as a sort of compromise to being a good person, but goodish as something that feels really mobile and active and dynamic and where you grant yourself the joy of getting better at something. Just like, you know, when you get a new phone and you figure out like how to use it or you take up a new hobby or you go to a new city or you move somewhere and you have to navigate some new neighborhoods and you figure it out. It feels so good when you learn something and get better at something. That's what being goodish is about is always getting better at it. And so if sometimes you've said something that's offended someone or if sometimes, you know, made a decision that in hindsight you realize maybe wasn't as cool as you thought it was, or if somebody said that was cultural appropriation and you don't know what they're talking about, or if you don't know how to pronounce someone's name so you avoid them because you don't want to offend them. These are all moments that make us wince, but that's because we're in a fixed mindset. If we can switch over to that growth mindset and be goodish, it's actually a wonderful moment to grow. Yeah, I love that message. Well, Dolly, let's talk a little bit more about your influences to be a professor and you know teacher and to have written a book like you have, which is which all are great accomplishments. Uh, who has influenced you the most in your life? Thank you. Well, first and foremost, absolutely my parents. I'm very blessed, and I still have them, thank God, to have two parents that have been beyond supportive in every aspect of my life, including this aspect of writing and teaching. Those are two activities that they've been encouraging since I was a small child. The story that, actually, I'm just remembering the story. I haven't thought about this in a long time, but I'll have to ask my mom if I, I'll ask her to fact check if I got the details right. But the story goes something like, I came home from, or no, I didn't come home. I got the teacher, my first grade teacher called my parents. And, you know, and of course my parents were like, oh no, what did she do? And, and they were like, no, no, she's, fine. She's doing good. She's learning a lot. The only thing is Dolly seems to think she's the teacher. (laughs) (laughs) I was like sort of like gathering kids around me so I could read to them and stuff like that. So my parents at a very young age, I think, saw my joy in these activities and have encouraged it. So they've been a huge influence and are a huge influence. And then I would say um, my mentors in my PhD program, Max Bazerman and Mazreen Banaji, two professors who were on my dissertation committee and served as PhD advisors, have been seminal. I think intellectually they both have shaped me, and then in terms of 
Max in particular has a knack of, well, it's not just a knack, it's a learned skill of listening deeply to what people care about and then creating opportunities that match those interests. And so he's really, time after time, looked for ways to kind of direct me towards the kind of research, the kind of teaching, the kind of jobs that he thought would be most fulfilling for me. That's great. Thank you for sharing those, Dolly. Do you have a favorite quote you'd like to share today, Dolly? Something maybe you live by or just inspired by? I do enjoy quotes. There was one I was thinking about recently. I was going to try to work it into a speech and I didn't, but uh, so this is a nice chance to get to use it. I believe it's by Dolly Parton, ironically, (laughs) I think. And it was, oh no, it wasn't. It wasn't Dolly Parton. Okay, it's a country music singer, and it's going to come to my mind as soon as we get off this call. (laughs) But in the meantime, I will tell you what it says. It says something like, all you need in life is a backbone, a wishbone, and a funny bone. Backbone, a wishbone, and a funny bone. Yeah, I love that. Isn't that good? Yeah, it's so good. (laughs) It's so good. That's great. Yeah, yeah. I like it too. Gosh, I wish I could remember. I could sort of picture her, but oh well. But anyway, it seems to cover a lot of the things we all are trying to foster in our lives and in our writing, you know, aspiration and courage and resilience through humor. No, I love it. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the book writing process, Dolly. I'd like to give listeners just some inspiration and some some tools that could help them if they're interested in writing a book first yeah. i'd like to just ask a little bit more about fear and doubt which i feel comes into a lot of authors minds including myself when i started writing uh, my book and just wondered if you experienced any of that while in the process of writing your book and if so what did you do to help overcome fear and doubt yeah, for sure. And still, I mean, like, I don't think it goes away, or for me, it hasn't. Let's see. So part of it is that I take seriously that idea that like, there's a draft zero and a, or a, I won't use the actual curse word, but blank first draft, you know, the crappy first draft. Yeah, I take those ideas really seriously and give myself latitude that like, those are actually multiple drafts worth of stuff you would never show anyone. And I've found that to be super liberating. I do a lot of dumping of ideas, like just some, not even full sentences always, like stuff you can copy and paste and move around or cut and paste and move around. So I do a lot of just filling pages with stuff, a lot of which goes away because it's bad, but the stuff that remains ends up being enough. Like there is some stuff in there. Like the ratio might be like 90% bad, 10% good. So yeah, you have to weed through it. But if I sit down and just try to get that 10%, I can't get to it. I have to go through that 90%. And so it's a little bit ironic because like it's so bad that it's, you would think it would actually make the fear and doubt worse. But in a weird way, it makes it better for me because it's just like the bar is so low, you know, like just (laughs) put anything on the page. And sometimes when I'm really stuck, I mean, this works more for what I do, which is nonfiction than it might work for someone who does something more creative. But like sometimes, you know, I'm referencing other people's work. And sometimes I literally will just literally be typing quotes 
like copying, like in quotation marks, you know, with a citation reference. Yes. That I'll fill a whole page with that, and you kind of look at that and be like, well, that was complete busy work. Like that really didn't accomplish anything. But somehow just getting my fingers moving, you know, then it'll sort of lead to before you know it, I'm adding my own ideas onto someone else's. So that helps me. I also do my hardest writing first thing in the morning, 530 in the morning. So I buy into that early morning thing. Yeah. And it does seem like it's almost like my anxiety seemed to grow throughout the day. I don't know why they're lower, if I'm just not awake, or I don't know what happens in the morning that's different, but the fear factor seems to be less for me first thing in the morning. Yeah, that's great. You talked a bit about it already. Any other tips on writer's block as you experience that, or is it just doing the things you just mentioned? You know, everyone has their own personality and work style. I'm one of those like, I want charts and schedules and spreadsheets and, you know, like checklists and stuff. I'm one of those people. So I respond a lot to the satisfaction of checking something off a list and the fear of missing a deadline. So my way through writer's block is to give myself a deadline. Like you just, you have 200 words due in an hour, period. You know, and, and just to yeah. push that onto myself. So it doesn't leave much room for actually not moving the needle forward. Yeah, perfect. Good tips, good tips. <laughs> what about the most difficult part about writing a book for you? What was that? Well, I do think of, for those who are choosing to publish through a publishing company, getting a book deal is certainly hard and cryptic. I think there's a lot of elements to as someone who consumes book and reads book and buys books, there's a lot of elements to the book industry that were not obvious to me about creating books and selling books. So I think the whole thing about, you know, if you're going to use an agent, how do you get an agent? And that I think is confusing and hard and the odds are so low. It can be so discouraging I also find I have an an MBA. So before I became a professor, I was like in the business world. So the other part of this is that the publishing industry is a, one of the senior executives at my publishing company told me is a quasi business, uh, not a business. And what she meant by that was like, it's not a business in the sense where every book is expected to sort of be profitable in the way that like Pepsi is probably not putting out products that are not profitable you know like if it's not if that new soda is not profitable they will stop making it but books aren't quite like that like they're not expecting every book to be profitable and as a result there's also not a lot of great data that allows you to figure out who's buying your book and what's helping people find your book and discover it. And so authors these days are expected to do a lot of promotion for their own books. Um, That's sort of explicitly stated by the big publishing companies. And so you're putting a lot of your own time and in many cases even money into the promotion of your own book. And yet you don't know what's actually working, what's actually helping readers find your book. So this quasi-business thing has been frustrating for me. I think I'm a little bit unique in that frustration. Other authors don't seem as bothered by it as I am, but it has uh, frustrated me. So 
So both of the things I named are a little bit more the kind of business side or publishing industry related yeah. things. But I think that's a those are great yeah. part of publishing a book. Yeah. What do you feel the publishing companies help you do the most then that you wouldn't be able to do on your own? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I got really great editorial guidance from my editor. My editor was Stephanie Hitchcock at HarperCollins. Um, I was under the Harper Business imprint. Her intellectual input on the content of the book and the structure, like how to structure a chapter. I had never written anything as long as a book. So kind of breaking it down and like helping me see the beats of a book and that was very helpful to me. I, I have, you know, come to realize that every editor contributes and involves himself differently with authors and books. Like I think she was on that piece of it more hands-on than some of my friends editors have been and, and less hands-on than others where some people do line edit, which she wasn't as apt to do. But that, that was very helpful to me. And I, I enjoyed the people a lot. Actually, it was I found myself uh, like these are people I'd want to be friends with. Like these would be yeah. the cool kids, you know, that I would want to hang out with. So I liked that a lot. That said, publishing companies, they, you know, if you're not a huge name author and I am not a huge name author, you're one of many, 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 many books that every person assigned to your book is working on, whether it's the cover designer or the proofreader or the editor. And so it is a little hard when you feel like, oh my God, this book is my bucket list thing. This is my heart. This is my soul. And they're like, yeah, this is one of X number that I will work on this season. Yeah. Um, so there's a little bit of a, sometimes a little bit of a disc. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing those experiences with us, Dolly. Appreciate it. Uh, one last question I had about the book writing process. Now that your book's out there and you know, put your heart and soul into it, obviously, and got the hold in your hands. What would you say the best part about writing a book has been for you? Well, I will say I have just found the whole thing joyful, more than I expected it to be. I loved the writing more than I thought it was. So many people told me that was a hellish time for them. They were so glad when it was over. That was not mm -hmm. true for me. I really liked the writing. I was dreading the promotion piece, thinking that would be, you know, like feel very self-aggrandizing and and it is there's no doubt but I've enjoyed the opportunity to connect with readers and with the ideas in the book and make them come alive outside of the page and the best part is exactly that I think it's for me someone who's written nonfiction that's meant to actually be put to use in people's lives it's the specific stories and anecdotes that people come back with saying, I tried what you said, and here's what happened, or I now look at a relationship in my life or an incident in my past differently, and I realize there was a mistake I made, and I can learn from it, and before I wasn't learning at all, I was angry and frustrated. So that is super gratifying, the, the actual impact of the work. You know, that's the part the teacher in me comes back of, you know, when we teach, when I'm teaching in a classroom, my, I'll never really see, as Lin-Manuel Miranda says, you know, these are seeds in a garden I'll never see. I don't know what happens when those students graduate and go off in the world. You hear from a small percentage of them. But 
when you write a book and you plant the seeds on the page and then you get to actually hear back from readers, that's really a wonderful reward. Yeah, amazing. Books are so awesomely powerful in that way. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you again for sharing all your experiences about the book writing process and about your book. I want to just make sure I didn't miss anything. So if there's anything at all you wish to share or if there was a question you'd like to ask yourself if you were in my shoes, what would that be? I would say that I am a big fan of using writing to figure out what you think. And so a lot of the writing process for me, I learned more through the writing than I expected to. The words that came out on the keyboard were sometimes not what I expected. Um, And so to me, that means there was actual learning going on between me and the page. And I wonder if that's because, you know, I know I'm the one who talked a lot about publishing industry and getting a book deal. So yes, the pragmatics are real, but if there can be some, in addition to that joy and gratification, simply from the learning that happens in the process of writing in some ways, depending on the other demands in your life, that might be reward enough. And so that's something I think I've come to realize more in recent years is even if nobody reads it, maybe you should still write it. Yeah, very true. And a lot of the authors I talk to talk about just the, even the healing process they might go through if they've had an experience writing about. So very true in, in both ways. Yes. So true. Well, Dolly, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. I just wanted to finish with where the listeners can connect with you online and what you're up to next. Oh, great. Sure. Well, um, I have a website, Dolly Chug, D-O-L-L-Y-C-H-U-G-H.com, which has, if you want to see my research and get into sort of the scholarly side of things, that's there. If you want to see media, I've been on the Today Show a couple of times, I've written stuff in the New York Times, I had a column in Forbes, if you want to read all that kind of stuff. The TED Talk I did last year, which has uh, 3.5 million views, you can check that out there. And what I'm up to next is trying to figure out what book two is going to be about. So I'm deep in thoughts and discussions (laughs) on on that. So um, hopefully I'll know soon. Awesome. Well, definitely look me up when you come out with that, that next one. I'd love to talk uh, to you about it. <laughs> thank you, Aaron. And thank you so much for allowing me to, to join you and your listeners in conversation. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Dolly. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Daily Authors Podcast. Be sure to visit dailyauthors.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content. 